4.30 a.m., Budapest, Hungary. A deserted cobblestone street is lit by a single sodium vapor lamp. Rain pounds down from the dark sky. Two soldiers in SS uniforms exit a hospital, dragging a semi-conscious patient along the cobblestones. Behind them, an SS officer holding a small black leather bag follows. It's 1944 in Nazi-occupied Hungary. The site is unfortunately a familiar one. Every day, the SS march into hospitals, pull out a sick or wounded patient, and the patient is never seen again. But there's a difference this time. That SS officer with the black bag is a Jew. And this is a rescue mission. I'm David Weil, creator and executive producer of the series Hunters on Prime Video. I was inspired to create the series because of my grandmother, Sarah Watt, a Holocaust survivor. When I was young, my softa started telling me the stories of her experiences during the war. To me, her heroism felt like the stuff of comic books and superheroes. During one of the darkest, most horrific periods in human history, there were ordinary people who made the choice to resist, standing up and fighting for the common humanity of their fellow people, doing what many of us would consider impossible. Hunters is inspired by the heroism of survivors like my grandmother and of heroes and resistors like these. The stories you're about to hear are true. And the words and many of the voices you'll hear belong to the heroes, survivors, their families, and friends. This is Chutzpah. Hunters presents True Stories of Resistance. And this is The Chameleon. Binkas Tibor Rosenbaum wasn't the first person you'd picture as a freedom fighter. With light, gentle eyes, handsome features, and a charming smile, he grew up popular, with no shortage of friends and attention from young women. He was also a rabbi's kid. In fact, he came from a long line of rabbis. And by 18, he'd already become one himself. As the eldest of six children, Pincus was deeply connected to both his family tradition and the Jewish community in Budapest. Wary of the sweeping wave of Nazism in Europe in the 1940s, he finds himself being drawn towards activist youth organizations, seeking to establish a Jewish state in Palestine, a movement known as Zionism. Here's Pincus's son, Charlie Rosenbaum. He came from a very orthodox family, super religious, you know, and they were absolutely not Zionistic. And he became Zionist, which was not his family's tradition. Definitely not. But for Pincus, this becomes his calling. By age 20, Pincus is working actively with the B'nai Akiva, a youth movement devoted to the activist principles of Torah and work, while actively supporting the mission to declare Israel a Jewish state of refuge. This was increasingly a concern as Germany continued its sweep across Europe. Up until this point, despite Hungary being an ally of Nazi Germany, Budapest contained one of the last Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. Until then, Hungary was a so-called paradise in Europe. While the whole of Europe was occupied, Hungary was not occupied. Okay, it was not, uh, it was not really a paradise, far away from it, but in comparison to Poland, Slovakia, it was definitely, you know, people were still living more or less normally. But on March 19, 1944, the war comes home. 
Germans invade Hungary and immediately start taking hold of the country, city by city. To lend a little more context, here's senior historian at Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial, Dr. Robert Rosette. So after the Germans enter Hungary on March 19th, 1944, they begin a series of steps against the Jews of Hungary. Now, they didn't enter Hungary in order to deal with the Jewish problem. That's what many people think. It's not really true. They dealt with it because of the war. But once they were in Hungary, they wanted to deal with the Jewish problem in Hungary as they saw it. Hungary had at that time, let's say before or the eve of the war, about 825,000 Jews. There weren't that many in Hungary at that moment already. There was less. But still, it's a very large community, and they want to deal with the Jewish community now, finally. In Budapest itself, the Jews have been restricted to special starred houses that are all over the city. So it's not a ghetto, but there's special houses. Why? Because the Allies are bombing Budapest, and there's belief that if the Jews are spread around the city, the Allies won't bomb, because they think these Jews somehow are important to the Allies. That's, of course, not the case, but that's why they're putting these houses all over the city. In Pinkas's hometown of Kishvarda, he begins to see time running out for the Jewish residents. Already across Hungary, Jewish residents have begun to be mass deported to Auschwitz. And in the Budapest ghetto, there are waves of street violence and killings by German soldiers. It's becoming increasingly clear the extent of the Nazi intentions. Pinkas and several of his B'nai Akiva partners join a youth resistance organization called Hatzola, literally to rescue. Of course, the Hatzola were Jews themselves, walking targets for the SS and the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian pro-Nazi movement. Their resistance would be short-lived if they were taken prisoner. So Pincus and the other members devise a dangerous plan. They will take on new identities. In a converted workshop, they begin a wholesale manufacturing operation. Fake IDs, fake birth certificates, and military documents. They've made tens of thousands of false papers, mostly Swiss, because they had access to the Swiss papers and they go to the printer at night or whatever they do and they run these things off. Estimates go from 80,000 to 200,000, nobody knows the numbers. And they're passing them out to everyone. Together with a small army of fellow resistors, Pinkas and his team go across Budapest, distributing these false papers to as many Jews as they can reach, giving them a chance to escape to Palestine. Not among them, is Pincus' own family. At the Passover Seder, his father, Chief Rabbi Rosenbaum, refuses to change his identity or disavow his religion and refuses to leave this community behind. No matter how much his son pushes, Pincus's father stands firm, believing that Hungary will be liberated before they have to worry. Pincus leaves that night frustrated. On his way out the door, his younger brother, Gershon, runs after him, begging Pincus to take him along with him. Pincus pats his brother on the shoulder and tells him he'll be back soon. Little did Pincus know that this Passover Seder would be the last time that he would see his family. As the Nazis take hold of the country, Pincus is conscripted into the Hungarian army and sent to work in the Munka Tabor labor camp, along with many of his comrades. Here again is Robert Rosette. So as the Hungarians were gearing up for the war, They reorganized their military, and they decided that they would reorganize forced labor or labor within the army, because military needs all kinds of labor, obviously. What they decided to do was to set up labor units within that are attached to the army for people who could not fight. It then became 
talking about not just fighting, but not worthy of fighting for Hungary. So Jews were designated as being unworthy of fighting for Hungary. And so by 1941, Jews have been thrown out of regular units, put into labor units, and Jews who are newly drafted are drafted directly into labor units. And then in spring of 1944, the Hungarians sent a quarter of a million troops into the Eastern Front, and they ended up sending about 45,000 Jewish forced laborers along with those troops. On the Eastern Front, the laborers engaged in all kinds of things, some of which was real labor and some of which, which was real labor, but with terrible, terrible treatment. The treatment was so bad that they were devastated by hunger and by typhus particularly. And so between everything that's happening here, uh, 45,000 Jewish men sent to the Eastern Front, only 20% would return home. But this would not be Pincus's fate. From his friends in the Hatzola, he obtained some contraband. Before he reports to the camp, he sews into the lining of his pants the metal tags belonging to the Leventa, the Hungarian Hitler Youth. With his military beret and the tag on his uniform, he would be indistinguishable from the Leventa. While he's at Munka Tabor, Pincus uses his charm to negotiate with generals in the labor camp, becoming the de facto rabbi within the camp. You know, he worked out deals with the general in the labor camp where he succeeded to get quite well along with. So he could reduce the amount of work they were doing. For example, my father refused to work on Shabbat. Everybody told me, you're crazy, you'll get killed, you know. I'm sorry, I'm not working on Shabbat, that's it. However, I'll do double the work on Sunday, which he was able to convince, uh, whatever was the general colonel, the head of the camp, and he could convince him to do it. So he was able to build a chemistry, even with all kinds of people. In a turn of luck, in the summer of 1944, the Hungarian government eases some of the restrictions on the conscripted soldiers, allowing a small committee to go back and forth to Budapest to get clothing and necessary supplies. Among them was the rabbi, Pincus. While he's out of the camp, he contacts his colleague from Hatzola, giving him information about all of the members stationed there. Speaking in code, he gets them to give him clothing, and not just any clothing disguises. September 1944. At 2 a.m. in the freezing cold, two men emerge through a crack in the fence of the labor camp, wearing the berets and badges of the Leventa. In full disguise, Pincus is easily mistaken for an Aryan. So this one, they've chosen him among many others to do this kind of a job. He has a charisma, he has a spoke perfect German, he did not look Jewish at all. His blonde, blue eyes, good looking. Now he was uh, extremely charming. That's why they, they decided to, to use him and he wanted to do it. Pincus and his friend returned to Budapest, only to make a terrible discovery. Pincus's family has already been taken to Auschwitz. They were murdered shortly after the last Passover dinner they spent together. In that moment, Pincus's world explodes, and he's gripped with a sense of mission and vengeance to save as many others as he can from the fate that befell his family and so many other Jews. Here's his youngest son, Rabbi Moshe Rosenbaum. 
I don't think we can even imagine the idea of the entire family being wiped out. As his, uh, besides his immediate family, it was his, you know, his extended family. Basically, he was the only one left. He had, I think, two cousins, three cousins. Maybe left from a huge family. It was like it's a, it was a horrible realization. That, I mean, that, I don't, I don't think at that point he realized that everybody was gone. But the very fact that he knew his, fa- his immediate family was gone. There was certainly a uh, catalyst for him to to decide to do things which were otherwise uh, would be crazy. And he makes a life-changing decision. To fight the enemy, you must become the enemy. With Hatzola, Pincus and his team escalate their operation. Pretending to be medics on the violent streets of Budapest, they remove the uniforms of injured or dying Arrow Cross and SS soldiers and take them as their own. And they decide they're going to rescue the Jews of Budapest one by one. Remember now at this point, Pincus is only 21 years old. Here's his childhood friend, Shmuel Abagros. So how I was able to pull all this off, a youngster, a punk. That's why I say this for how they defies logic, defies uh, human psychology. In Pincus's mind, there is no other choice. Once again, here's his son, Charlie. Well, my father wanted to be very, very active. My father was among those, those youths who decided they are going to try everything possible. And he was one among them who took the risk he wanted to do. How he had the courage to do it is another question. He was risking his life every day. But he knows he can't do it alone. So he takes an even more brazen risk. One of his first orders of business is to impersonate a clerk at the Swiss consulate. And he drafts an order releasing his Hatzola friends from the labor camp. Pincus sends his disguised colleague, Avraham Miller, into the Munka Tabor camp with an official order, releasing several members of Hatzola still held captive. When his friends return to Budapest, they're in for a surprise. And one of the guards took us to the railroad station and took us up to Budapest. He took us to a very large synagogue in the Arena Street. Every nook and cranny was filled with people from the basement to the rafters. During this time, Pincus's mission has an unlikely ally, a man named Karl Lutz. Karl is a Swiss diplomat in Budapest, working on behalf of Switzerland, as well as the US and Great Britain, after they have cut all ties with Hungary. Robert Rosette explains further. So the Germans enter Hungary and the Swiss consul Charles Lutz, who has a good contact with a Zionist leader by the name of Miklos Moshe Kraus on a special background as well. If you want to go to Palestine before the creation of the state of Israel, you get a certificate of Aliyah, it's called. And you need those and there's not many being given out because the British have cut back. But all through the war, there's a trickle of them in Hungary. So you can't send a British document to Hungary during wartime because they're fighting each other. So who sends the document? The Swiss. They're neutral and they're representing Great Britain. In his position, Lutz has seen firsthand the horrors of the rapidly disappearing Hungarian Jewry. And he realizes he has a way to help. While Pincus and Lutz are not directly connected, their goals are the same. At all costs, get Jews to Palestine. The Swiss strike a deal with Adolf Eichmann, where they can get 7,800 certificates to Israel under British protection. Karl arranges to keep pass holders safe in what becomes a key location in the story, the Glass House. Located at 29 Vardaz Street, the Glass House is a converted glass factory 
under the protection of the Swiss government. It's like an alternative Swiss embassy. And for Pincus and his team, it becomes a safe house. The glass house is a place in which eventually about 3,000 people will come in. Again, holders of Swiss papers, but not just. It becomes the headquarters of the Zionist youth movement, for example. Each movement, there's a number of them, and each has dozens of people in that house, if not more. And many of them are in the glass house, which becomes their headquarters. And then they actually set up an annex. October 1944. Dressed in an SS uniform, Pincus pounds on the door of a terrified family, Jeno and Lily Frankel, prominent Jewish leaders. He chases them out of their apartment, cursing at them, threatening them, and shoving them into the waiting black cars belonging to the Arrow Cross. Here again is his childhood friend, Shmuel Abagros. We went to the house, and uh, the big noise and banking, uh, banging the, the, uh, the super, they screamed at him, they better move because, or else... And they went out to, to Frankl's apartment. The local Nazis conducted practically hunts every day all over. They found Jews, herded them to the Danube, and they shot them into the river in the hundreds. The family is hysterical. Jeno's young son screams. Neighbors watch with alarm and dread, wondering if they will be next. But when they get in the car, Pincus's voice changes. He speaks Yiddish as he tells them, I am also a Jew. I have come to save your children. And Jeno realizes the unbelievable. Pincus? The black cars stop at the glass house, where the family is given a Schutz pass, putting them under the protection of Switzerland. Day after day, week after week, Pincus and his comrades repeat the same scene again and again, saving hundreds of Jews. And day after day, Pincus dresses in the clothing of the enemy playing the role of the thing that he hates most. One can only imagine what that does to a person, what he thinks when he looks at himself in the mirror. But whatever emotional toll the role took, Pincus continues, because he must. In the words of his son, Charlie, He was able to identify with so many different worlds. The reason he could do what he did in Budapest, he could identify with the Nazis, when we identify with the Nazis, no, but he could speak their language. Think the way they think. And it's part of his charisma and his, and his sensibility to understand the way to talk to them. And that's how he basically he gains the trust of so many people. But reality continues to show its brutal face. The Arrow Cross takes over the Hungarian government. Trains carry Jews by the thousands to Auschwitz every single day. By late October, the glass house is overflowing with over 3,000 Jews inside and lines around the block every day. And Pincus realizes just how loud the ticking clock is getting. The place became absolutely chaotic and catastrophic. In fact, it twice has happened that the Hungarian Nazis once penetrated the place and they came to the cellar. One cellar was occupied by the local Budapest Orthodox families, whole families. So they threw in a hand grenade and several people were killed on the spot. However, by international law, the Jews inside the glass house are still given safe haven. While the building's status under Swiss rule continues to provide its residents tenuous protection, it's clear that the Nazis are getting restless, and the lines outside the door only continue to get longer. In desperation, Pincus and his partners break through the wall of the abandoned soccer club next door to hold more people. 
but even this won't last forever. As the situation gets increasingly dire in Budapest, Pincus decides to take on his most dangerous operation yet. Zadie Seidenfeld was a key operative in Hatzola, helping to transport false documents for Hungarian Jews, carrying them to safety until he was captured by the Gestapo. Hidden in a satchel under his belt were hundreds of blank International Red Cross certificates. These would provide safe passage for Jews from Hungary to Palestine under British law. For days, the Nazis tortured Zadie, but he refused to speak. His body bruised and battered, he was transferred to a makeshift hospital at 44 Veselny Street before they could take him in for a second round of interrogations. When Hatzola learns of Zadie's condition, they make a decision. They have to get him out. Pincus and his compatriot Yossi volunteer to undergo a rescue mission. The other members say it's too dangerous. Even stepping outside the glass house can be a death sentence. Here again is Pincus's childhood friend, Shmuel Abba Gross. The terror became worse and worse at the building, at the gate. People were shot. So I kept on asking, begging him, Pinchas, why don't you stay here? Don't go out. Stay here. But Pincus's mind is already made up. The night of November 4th, 1944, it's pouring rain. Sheets so thick you can't see your hand in front of you. At three in the morning, Pinkas and Yossi walk out into the dark, rainy street, dressed in SS uniforms and long leather coats. Beneath those coats are loaded guns. And on the way there, they met another SS patrol. At that time, they found them on the street and they should be able to mention a certain password. They didn't know the password. Pinchas, before he even had time to think about it, the other guy must have had a very fast, fast-thinking guy. He took his weapon and shot the other two enemies. He also had the presence of mind to take out the sheet of paper, and on the paper he wrote down, that's the fate of those who defy the glorious SS uniform. To imply, they were the imposters. Shaken, but more determined than ever, they walk with purpose toward the hospital on Veselny Street what once used to be a Jewish elementary school. In front of the hospital is a guard. Pincus asks the guard to take them straight to the prisoner in room 243. The guard says he can, he's just a night watchman. Pincus steps forward, looks him in the eye, and asks the feared question. Are you a Jew? The guard, frightened, whispers, yes. Then Pincus whispers back in Yiddish, we too are also Jews, here to rescue a comrade. He says if the guard helps them, they can bring him to safety. The guard steps back, his mind racing. As he walks away, the minutes tick on. Pincus and Yossi wait anxiously, clutching their weapons. Will this be the moment they get found out? Is this where it all ends? After several minutes, the guard returns, holding up a half-conscious patient. It's Sadie. And now we return to where our story began, with Pinkas and Yossi dragging a body behind them on that dark, rainy street. They walk with Sadie in tow, straight to the glass house. And at 4.38 in the morning, the gates swing open, and Sadie is brought in to the medical team. More importantly, Pinkas has his documents. 
Thanks to this daring rescue in the International Red Cross papers that Pincus was able to salvage, hundreds of Jews were saved from the camps and from certain death. But he didn't do it alone. Together with his friends in the Hatzola and all of the other Jewish activist youth groups in Hungary, they stood up to resist, to treat every life as sacred, even in the most terrifying circumstances. When Budapest was liberated, there were about 100,000 people there. And it has a lot to do with what they were doing because it had to do with protecting them outright or, or giving them food or clothing, or whatever they needed. So they have a hand in the survival of most of those people. They all created an atmosphere of rescue. And that atmosphere allowed 100,000 people roughly to survive. For over six months, Pinkas Tibor Rosenbaum was a master of disguise, a chameleon. His appearance and demeanor so convincing it fooled even his fellow Jews. Every moment, his own life was on the line, but he was never discovered. Along the way, he saved an estimated thousands of lives. Which brings us back to a fundamental question. Why? Why would someone risk their own life every single day to help strangers? The answer for Pincus is that he felt it was his duty. What motivated him are two things. First of all, he was always, always had a certain social conscience to help people. He was very much always into helping people, to do, do things for people. Secondly, Pinchas said, said that that's the only way he can do something. At least he was not able to save his parents and his siblings, not able to do anything for them. At least he feels that he does something to take revenge uh, for what happened, what happened found there. In all of his actions and choices, Pincus truly embodied the quality known as chutzpah. Chutzpah is a word that has no equivalent word, I think, in almost any language, but it's a combination of being bluff, of being audacious, and saying things that you would think people wouldn't say, or that would be one way of it. It's, it's a number of different characteristics altogether, that again, there's no one other word that I know of in another language that really encapsulates it. But if you want to pretend that you're somebody you're not and to get away with it, you need chutzpah. That's the thing you need. You need to have that bluff, that confidence that comes with it. And that's what you need. Following the war, Pincus worked for the United Nations acting as security to help shepherd Jews to Palestine. He went on to marry Stephanie Stern, and they moved to Geneva and had three children, two sons and a daughter. He became a successful banker and a loving father and grandfather. But the fight inside of him never died. Throughout the remainder of his life, Pincus remained a passionate defender of the Jewish people, fighting for the continued existence of the state of Israel. In fact, his last mission before he died at the age of 57 was for the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence organization. But that's, well, classified. And a story for another time. People ask me, how, how could your father do things? It was so, so dangerous, you know. Never thought about himself, you know. We're all thinking about others. What can he do to help this one, help this one, help this one? It was basically this guided him all his life. That if I did remain alive, and all my family passed away. I'm here to do something. And then in those days, he told himself, with how I understand, what is the worst that could happen? 
I would be caught and I would be killed. I would just be have the same face as my family. I guess this was what was going on in his mind. We honor the heroes of the past, heroes like Pinkas, Tibor Rosenbaum, by invoking their memory in the present. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I am so excited for you to check out the series Hunters, streaming on Prime Video. If you're interested in learning more about Pinkas Rosenbaum, look out for a new book about his life, scheduled to be released in 2023. Thank you to Yad Vashem, Moriah Films of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and the Museum of Tolerance. And a special thank you to the Rosenbaum family, Dr. Robert Rosette, Rick Trank, and Judy Friedman. Biggest prize you could imagine. One more run. And everything that we have done will have been worth it. We can't do it alone, so where are your friends? Evil doesn't retire. So why should we? This has to be perfect, like clockwork. Join us. Hunters, starring Al Pacino. Executive produced by Jordan Peele. Stream now on Prime Video. This podcast was narrated by David Weil, creator and executive producer of Hunters on Prime Video. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, Stephen Hine, Natalie Williams, and David Weil. Produced by Netta Farshboff, Keisha Center, and Sophia Williams. This episode is written by Josh Chesler. The voice of the Nazi soldier is Jan Close. Voiceover casting by Daryl Eisenberg and Allie Beans. Associate producers are Rebecca Drucker and Hayda Holscher. Post-production and co-produced by Trey Booty. The podcast featured the original theme and score from Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Chutzpah, Hunters Presents True Stories of Resistance, is produced by Prime Video, Monkey Paw Productions, and Story Mill Media.